0: Hello, and welcome to Shape the System, where we find and tell the stories that help people to rethink the way the world works. We interview people from all over the world who are helping to change our systems for the better. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures, who help ambitious founders and their teams scale up for success. More about KPMG High Growth Ventures after the interview. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Shape the System. I'm your host, Vincent Turner. Uh, today, we're joined by Dave Levy of Mayakama's Sanctuary. Dave, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me,
1: Vincent. Yeah, absolutely. And so, look, let's, let's just dive straight in. Talk to me about uh, Mayakama's. I, I want to look for, for people who aren't in the Bay Area. They're not going to know some of these places. So I'd love for you to just sort of paint a tapestry of, of what this place is.
2: Sure. Mayakama's sanctuaries above the town of Calistoga and the wine country, about an hour from the Golden Gate Bridge. It was a a group retreat center that I became the steward owner of in 2006. It was a multi-purpose group retreat center, everything from yoga and nonprofit Mm -hmm. summits to uh, board meetings and Burning Man being planned there to climate change summits to water summits. It was truly a multi-dimensional gathering spot. And it all burned down right. in the uh, wine country fires in 2017. So we're right. healing and regenerating the land and our relationship with it um, in a go-forward called the Mayakama Sanctuary.
1: Right. And, and just to describe the space to me. There's some amazing kind of features of this landscape. Sure.
2: It's um, – Geologically, it's in a crown of an ancient volcano, um, a a caldera. So, about three million years ago, um, that created the topography. It has dark skies, silence, and an abundance of aquifers, water, to keep Mm -hmm. us off the grid. And we have about 300 acres. um, And it's just an incredible place to renew, reflect, and connect with yourself and your group and to further whatever you're working on
1: right and that's I mean when you when you like took you said the stewardship of the, of the ranch as it was at the time is that your that was that the intention that you brought into the space which was the, these spaces need to exist and this is why I need to take this on and and I see the role it plays in you know creative thought and how people approach problem solving and then you know collectivization talk, talk us through its role, role and its modality I guess yeah
2: sure well I think it's really hard when you're stressed and busy to think clearly, and the inspiration for me was spending time at the Tassajara Zen Monastery and being cut off from the internet and the telephone. My mind was able to access information and feelings that I wouldn't be able to tap into otherwise, and I just had this itch to find land and to create a place where people could go and renew and collaborate and solve big challenges in society—that was the initial impetus,
1: right? And where was this this monastery that you referred to? Where was that? Tassajara is in the uh,
2: San Pedro um, forest down near Big Sur.
1: Okay, lovely. Another beautiful part of North California. <laughs> yeah,
2: amazing place. Not too far from Esalen. So these, you know, these retreat centers, these play, power places, often that were mm-hmm. the. Homes of the indigenous people of our region um, became the places of gathering for modern man.
1: Right, and like you talked about, I mean, Esselen's one that you know I think some other people would potentially be aware of as well. What's some of the thinking that traditionally has come out of these kind of spaces, not necessarily Esalen, but in in these types of spaces generally?
2: Yeah, I think what happens when people are deeply connected to land is how do I steward that place for, you know, a long-term purpose and creating community on land isn't so easy. Our model was to have retreats come and go. And we had a staff that was the, you know, the permanent fixture on the land, but it's not so easy to, you know, converge nature and community and purpose. So you really have to have a long-term attitude and be in relationship with the place and the people and not look at it as a transaction as many people in real estate or hospitality do.
1: Right. So it's not It's not simply, you can't simply create a function center and expect the doors to open and the creativity to flow. You actually need to, in some way, kind of create some permanence with the land in terms of your connection to it and the, I guess, the, the permanence that people will have or the, the connection that people will have by extension. Well, what we
2: did was that we developed relationships with incredible leaders or organizations nonprofits or corporations and they would access the space and we would provide right. all the amenities but yes it's um you know, there's different models out there but our model was to be that the group was our customer not the individual
1: got it got it in terms of and the group in t- typically would come into a, a space or, or look for that with a specific intent or purpose we need to go and you know, reimagine how Burning Man's gonna work or or, or or some other, you know, specific purpose. Is that sort of how the dialogue goes between you and the group to understand whether, you know, this is the right fit for their needs or this is how this is something they should look at?
2: Well, generally in the past, people knew about the property and once they came there, they rebooked. So we were sold out about two years ahead of time. And generally people right. would go there to you know, not only to renew and relax, but to create intimacy between the group. And often when you're working in an office building or a traditional (laughs) business setting, you know, you don't really have space and time to connect with each other. So having a place for creative collaboration is really powerful.
1: Right. And how did you see groups, as I was going to say individuals, but groups respond to that? Is it something that came to people naturally when they get into the space do, do they just change gears or is there a kind of a, an adjustment or, you know, a moment where they need to kind of think, rethink their relationship with the space and as a result change their behaviors? What happens?
2: Yeah, great question. I mean, I was just astonished how quickly people could drop in into a relaxed mindset as, as soon right. as they really walked on the land. Once they parked their car and got rid of their phones and just you know, take a deeper breath and feel the okay. silence and the and the nature. It would immediately in, intoxicate them in the best kind of way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm actually, almost, I'm getting a little more relaxed just talking about it. <laughs> is there actually just as a curiosity? There, you talked about driving in, do they. Is there a? Is there even a like a vi, a visual separation? You drive into a place and you don't need, need to walk away from there to be into. What was the ranch now the sanctuary? Yeah, uh, like, do, do you create a visual separation of the moment that you leave the vehicle and the car and everything that represents? Even
2: we did. I mean, there was about a mile and a half drive from the the main road, so that process right. of entering the property, the landing zone as they call it, you know, created a right. bit of a transition point, and then people would park their cars away from the main retreat center, and then they'd walk into the property. So there was a a nice transition that allowed people to drop in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine. And you talked about 300 acres. So, you know, there's a huge variety of, of kind of spaces, you know, within, within the, the property itself. And you talked a lot about water and aquifers, like, like, just give me a sense of what someone's day typically looks like. Or a group's day would look like in, in over the course of their stay.
2: Sure. Most groups would come either from, Sunday to Thursday, or Friday to Sunday. And the weekend groups were, you know, a lot of uh, yoga teachers and wellness workshops occurred there. Mm -hmm. So people would gather as a group. They would check in. They would be assigned to their rooms. They would then gather and be oriented to the land, and then people would be invited to take a walk and sort of leave um, their modern experiences in society behind and often there would be a dinner where people could you know connect to each other and then the evening there might be a yoga class or a talk and then the next day you'd walk up and be in the rhythm of you know being in in yoga or a workshop or a class of some sort with lots of space in between to swim in the lake or in the pools or to walk on the land and you know, we had the fire pits um, in the evening, so it was really a bit like adult camp for the modern
1: workforce. <laughs> it's actually a great segue as well because I'm I'm curious to this idea of the modern workforce. When you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're we're at the moment as we record this, it's kind of middle of May. Um, the world is in a, a funny place. So I probably use that term lightly, but. It, it's a it's a changing way in which people relate to work and the nature of work is changing. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, obviously a lot of people remote now, but pr- likely a shift towards a high degree of remote work and to a degree isolation, maybe social isolation or even just workforce isolation. How, like that feels like that's a set of conditions that make this even more relevant. Talk, talk to me about that.
2: Well, it's a extremely challenging time for our for our society and the whole future of work and play and purpose is now being redefined. And I don't think we really know and fully understand what that's going to look like. But when I think into the future of my commas, you know, after the fire and rebuilding the property, we're going to be doing this in relation to the, the current realities. And I believe that, for those that have a choice, that are privileged to work from home, that they're going to want to have deep connection with those they work with, not necessarily in an office building. So we're imagining that our property could be a um, an innovative um, ancillary complement to virtual workers, so that when you do. Right. Have all that time in your home, you're also having deep retreat experiences and co-working spaces on our land, and that dance between home and the Zoom experience and and nature, <laughs> I think will allow you know companies and groups to feel that intimacy that we don't necessarily have if we're always a virtual.
1: Yeah, and look, uh, there's certainly a massive minority, a very small number of companies today who uh, have always been remote. You know, they were remote first, if you want to sort of use that label, and pretty much universally, like I'm thinking about Typeform, based over and effectively based in Barcelona, but largely remote. Buffer, who I think were out of the uh, San Francisco, but again, largely remote, and pretty much the hallmark for all these companies is a one or two times a year uh, retreat into nature that is really not about work, like. Is, I mean, Mayakamas feels like it's going to be playing a role in the way these types of companies and companies that model themselves on these companies do work and and imagine they create their own culture of work. Is that really the emergence of of the sanctuary in, in terms of its role and a lot of what you see it doing in the future?
2: I do. I think that whether or not a group can convene at a retreat center or a national park or some other public space that we are going to be living in a world where people are going to be craving human connection and nature provides that safe place in terms of the distancing, the movement of air, all these Mm -hmm. things that we're now being told are necessary in order to gather. So, you know, instead of building, you know, really a fancy corporate retreat center or resort, I think what we can build is, you know, sleeping structures that allow one or two people to have their own space and then common areas for eating and then obviously the natural resources for walking and potentially moving through the land in a way that's a um, a transformational experience where people can move from one place in the land to the next and be guided in a curated experience to not only, you know, renew, but also to be creative and problem solve for whatever they're working right. on. So we're pretty excited about it
1: all. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some of the the renders uh, on the on the site, and I mean, the ranch prior looked amazing as well. I mean, the setting is mind blowing. So it's sort of hard to go wrong. But when you reimagine the physical spaces that you're adding, as in the buildings and the fire pits and other structures, uh, how are you getting the balance right between? Enough so that people have the built environment, but not so much that, to your point, it becomes a kind of a corporate retreat center.
2: Yeah, I think the key is to have a pod, so clustering mm. in the sleeping in a dense area so there's more nature around us. And right. then I do think there's going to be a need for a really state-of-the-art media center, but not mm. in the middle of the property, probably somewhere that is separate. Where people can right. go and not only, you know, create video or do live-to-air conversations, but experience for those that are not there on the land, those that are in the virtual connection to those on the land, can experience the land. If that makes sense, a certain kind of convergence right. of the land with the media is what I'm imagining.
1: Yeah, and look, it, it's it's funny. The thing that this is, might sound odd, but the thing that comes to mind was the very. Um, intentional kind of deliberate layout of, of an IKEA shop to require you to walk through the whole IKEA shop. If you put the facilities, you know, to use that term loosely and probably bluntly, uh, that the, that are on the land and on, on, in the sanctuary in various locations that require people to move between the spaces, then so much of that sounds intentional to actually force people to to take a two-kilometer walk to get to the other part of the thing that they need to go to that afternoon—is that that sort of part of that thinking?
2: It is. I mean, it's interesting when people came to our land before; often they didn't really get on the property as much as we would have liked because it wasn't. We weren't curating right. that in the future we will. Right. People would end up, you know, being in the, the yoga room or in the dining room or the pool, and they would be so happy just to be with each other. They often weren't getting on the land enough. So in the future, we're going to design it in a way that really invites people to be on the land. And our model in the future is not to rent it out to groups, but for members to be sponsored in guilds who are
1: solving big challenges in society. Right. Help me understand a little bit more about that proposed model because that feels like a not a shift but just a, a different direction. Yeah the the
2: the original inspiration was a place where people could go to collaborate on on big challenges and to sure. be sponsored by um, investors or philanthropists. And right. when we acquired the land, we had a going concern, and we ended up never transitioning into our own curated uh, groups. The fire. Um, unfortunately destroy the property, but also through that you know, destruction, we've been sitting for two years thinking, how can we get back to that original vision? And what's coming through is to have um, leaders with some great innovation
1: mm-hmm.
2: to, um, or solution to be sponsored in a process with um, funders to demonstrate on the land their solution, it could be ag tech or permaculture or smart homes. Right. And for those that aren't demonstrating on the land, to have other groups that are gathering to come up with a solution and then submit it to a group of funders to be backed and implement. So we really see this whole idea of the land being a living laboratory for demonstrating human mm ecological regeneration and probably will end up with somewhere between 100 and 120 groups that share the space.
1: That's, that's fascinating. And so they use the space as a as a place to, to do the creative work, but then they also output assets, if you want to call them that, but things things that solve the problem, whether it's a type of permaculture or a particular building or um, a way of treating water, actually onto to the land itself to demonstrate the utility and value of this creation—is that I've understood that correctly?
2: Yeah, it's sort of think of it as sort of a an incubator or an accelerator. Yeah, where people go there to empty out, to ideate, to imagine a solution, to harness collective intelligence, and then over a period of time, um, work with experts and funders to agree on an initiative and. To really be deliberate in a process versus, you know, a one-time retreat and then you go home. Right. To really make it a new kind of co-working, collaboratory space.
1: Yeah, and that was sort of going to be my follow-on question. Does that mean? I mean, it's fascinating. I've never heard anything like this. But does that mean you see people who are those, you know, those leaders, those people who've been sponsored in, for, for want of a better word, uh, who? Will actually be spending like a longer periods of time on, or be coming to and from. I mean, this is an hour and a half north of San Francisco. It's a very accessible part of the world. Is, is that are they are they going to be spending a lot more time at the sanctuary as a result? Is that sort of the mode? I think we'll have
2: three types of customers. One will be those that are demonstrating something physical on the property, and they will be there on a regular basis. Some on a semi full time basis, right? Then there will be those that are you know solving a challenge but aren't necessarily physically demonstrating. Right. And they'll probably, you know, come there, you know, once a quarter because they'll be working off-site but they'll always come back to the ranch to, you know, check in and connect and keep working on their challenge. Yeah. And then the third category will be the, you know, members and families that are there with real no agenda except to experience the medicine of nature and community and, you know, just deep retreat. And some of them may end up becoming, you know, guilds or initiatives. But we want to balance the work of the physical demonstrations with the groups who are there working on a challenge with families who are able to access the land and not necessarily be held Accountable to anything except their own renewal.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, totally understand. In fact, there's, I'm sort of seeing a lot of, a lot of C's in there, right? There's, there's creativity, there's connection, there's community. Uh, I think challenges. So it was, it, uh, there seems to be a predominant theme of, of C's. I'm not sure what, <laughs> not sure what that plays. Consciousness, collaboration. Consciousness. Pre- thank you. Yeah. There's, um, Communications. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, something there. I'm not sure what that is. That just sort of popped in when you were talking about that. You're seeing things in a whole new way. Oh great! <laughs> Dave, I love it. You went there. That's awesome. Dave, how did you, like? How did you? I How did you arrive at this location? How did you not physically? I mean, physically sure, but how is it that you ended up like being the steward of a of a ranch in you know North California and wanting to solve this set of problems and even viewing the world this way?
2: Yeah, I mean, we all have our story that everything leads to the next. I mean, for me, sure, I grew up in Washington D.C., but I. You know, lived in a suburb. I wasn't in nature, but I did I was fortunate to be able to go to camp as a kid. And I just loved how I always felt in nature. And I think anyone who's spent time in nature that it's not negotiable um, to not have that be part of your life. And when I moved to right. uh San Francisco, I had been involved in public interest fundraising and working for causes. So I was very purpose driven and you know, living in, living in the Bay Area, wanting to make more money to support my family. I became a merchant banker, investment banker, helping entrepreneurs raise money, helping um, families and entrepreneurs sell their businesses. And I ended up um, being one of the founding partners of a finance company that had some modest success. And I went on that ret- one of my annual pilgrimages to Tassajara, right. to the Zen Center, and I just got this idea that Unless you get really sick, and or get really old, or go on a deep retreat, you're mu- unlikely to really change your your life very much, and you're right. sort of going to be stuck in patterns. Right. And I just thought it would be a wonderful thing, knowing that we don't live forever, to find a place that could be a you know a a, a legacy um, around this idea that when we're generous to ourselves. We have the capacity to be generative and generous to others. And sure. that our well-being is really connected to finding that purposeful expression for other people. And that was the mm-hmm. the seed germ of the idea. And, you know, it's been a challenging project, but I'm committed to it more than ever given what's happening in the world and what I see as one of the most important things, one of the most foundational things of being a human being is to manage our relationship with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And in turn, others. And we can't do that when we're highly stressed, anxious. So I was a, you know, a sports guy. I played, uh, you know, Division One tennis. I got into squash. Yep. yep. I was a pro squash player. Of course. <laughs> and that was my practice. Right. And I always like being at the edge of doing something that forces me to grow. And I thought, I'm going to go ahead and try to find land. And this land showed up, and it's been my um, it's been a relationship that's allowed me to learn a lot about myself and my ego and my limitations. And really, I need a model how to collaborate and to work
1: mm-hmm.
2: not on my own and to go forward, but now we are have really some exciting partners that have the same mindset.
1: Yeah. And just wanted to come back one, just once the Zen Center. Was there a like a, a moment or an insight? Was there something that happened that triggered that thinking? Or was it just over a period of time and exposure to that? You questioned the patterns as you mentioned. Like how? Like what changed? I think there was the
2: the dot com thing was happening in you know the late nineties, two thousand. Yeah, everyone was focused on you know making money, and I just you know my background was in psychology and in philanthropy and social venture, and I was like, yeah, why is it that people who make so much wealth? Are focused on making more wealth when they won the money game. (laughs) But are they going to go from the money game to success and having significance? And just, I was really always been interested in that existential question of how do we give ourselves away? And I think that was sort of a big part of it for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I was uh, at the very start of my technology career. And I'm sort of making air quotes when I say that in the late '90s. So I have a very small microcosm of an understanding of how that must have felt in the Bay Area at that time. And this was a this was an unusual time to be alive, anyway. But also in that part of the world, I think it was a warped sense of of reality, if we can use that word. So, just in in terms of the you talked about partners coming on the journey as well. Did you find when you had Taken stewardship of, of of the ranch in its initial form, that that was forthcoming, or did you have to go and put that out into the world and bring people on that journey? How did that transition from you and your idea with a you know block of land in a beautiful part of the world to a, a movement, if you want to call it that? Well, I mean, I had a
2: relationship with a healer, mm-hmm. uh, Doctor Jim Gordon of the Center for Mind Body Medicine. Mm-hmm. And they train caregivers working with traumatized populations all over the world. And I think I learned a lot about healing yeah. and regeneration and resiliency and just the amazing capacity each of us have to improve our wellness. Right. So, you know, and I had a lot of relationships in the in the yoga and nonprofit philanthropic community, but ultimately. The land just was the draw, and it naturally filled up.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I think our our biggest challenge has been, you know, capex and mm-hmm. improving the property because it was a, you know, a cash flow positive business, but it didn't spit out enough profits to really um, allow for additional investment. Right. Um, so you know, it's it's really about you know for me how do you balance the material the psychological and the spiritual Mm -hmm. we achieve that but you know i'm one person with limited resources and now you know i'm realizing how much we need each other to do anything and that's right you know being in this place of of vulnerability after the fire it it, it, you know it reminds me but i think right now what's happening with the, the pandemic is that if someone else isn't doing well, you're not doing so well, and that we need each other to do anything. And I think a place like this can, can really model how do you how do you bring the Phoenix up from the ashes. Right. In a sense, our whole world is in a place of trying to figure that out now.
1: Yeah. And look, it, it highlights especially, I mean, a lot of the time when you get on the land, you see the interdependence of the things that are on the land, and it reminds you of your own both insignificance and interdependence on on other things, other people, uh, and the sort of the, the built world and the natural world around you. Are, are you thinking, just coming back a, a step on this, with these, you talked about 100, 120 companies, ventures, you know, initiatives, whatever we want to call those. Guild, guilds?
2: <laughs> guilds or micro-communities,
1: I think of that as. You know. Guilds or micro-communities. Do you, do you see a model where ultimately you might be invested in their success such that that may Return the capital to to then fund the kinds of things that you want the investments that you want to make in the the property itself or the, the sanctuary? Yeah,
2: very much so. We see amazing innovators that need a place to demonstrate that need money, yep, so just like a private equity or venture capital firm might invest in something, right we will be investing in these entrepreneurs and their innovations and have an economic sharing with them.
1: yeah. Yeah. So I, I hadn't connected the dots on that earlier, but it sort of made sense when you talked about it, talked about it now. Um, you talked a little bit about your, uh, network that has come out of a lot of healers and, and yogis and, and people in the kind of social uh, impact and kind of nonprofit space. So you've got a huge amount of exposure to this kind of mode of thinking and purpose driven people generally. What's your, like, who are your go tos? Who are the people who, when you see them and, and, and spend time with them, even, you know, they're inspiring to you and, and, and sort of lift you up and and help you with your own sort of thoughts and process.
2: Well, certainly, uh, Dr. Jim Gordon, the center for mind, body medicine have inspired me. And I think each of us have people in our lives that, that changed us. And when you look to your purpose, often it's tied to those people that brought you that gift. So for me, you know, I've been a trustee and the major organizer of money for the center's work over the last, you know, 20 years. Right. And, you know, I see his initiative to bring to heal trauma and restore hope. One of our you know, primary philanthropic activities um, that will be supported on and off the land. I also get a lot of inspiration from a guy named Tom Chi, who mm-hmm. is one of the founding partners of Google X. Right. And he has a, um, a venture fund to help humanity become net positive, net carbon positive. And he's helping us co-design an innovation lab mm-hmm. at Mayakama Sanctuary. So, you know, I'm not technological, I'm not a scientist, but what he is doing in vetting and backing breakthrough innovators and scientists gives me a lot of um, a lot of inspiration
1: Uh, some of the i've had a look at some of the stuff they're doing it's it's fascinating and it's also like it, it it appears whimsical that's the thing that sort of makes it interesting for me when you look at it on the outset you're like really and then when you understand how you connect the dots from you know a hot air balloon that might you know ultimately become a weather balloon that might ultimately become internet for places that don't have internet you think okay there's there's so much kind of it's hard to connect the dots, you know. Looking forward in a lot of respects, in some of this stuff, I I equally find that fascinating. Yeah. Just before you described yourself as not a scientist and not not a technology person, how how would you describe yourself? I've been
2: called a, a cosmic promoter. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's amazing!
1: <laughs> really? Have you been called that?
2: I've been called a cosmic promoter, but I you know I think I um, I take that. I have a, I have a lot of vision and a lot of creativity sure. and. I'm not afraid to take risk and I have a way of, you know, taking a negative and making positive contact with it. So, you know, being a squash player, Mm. you learn how to be in the field to be the player and to be the observer of the player. And those three things are Mm -hmm. a big part of how I look at, you know, higher states of human consciousness. So when we're often, you know, in, you know challenging sports or challenging situations we get into these flow states where mm-hmm. we're not really even thinking we're just being and doing and it's an mm-hmm. incredible state so i really i don't know what that makes me but you know i aspire to you know converge my my work and my play and my purpose as one and the same yeah and for a lot of time i thought i was goofing off playing tennis and squash with people but it turned out that my best friends came from that and a lot of them right. became partners and lifelong friends.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would not look that gift horse in the mouth. You when we before before the interview you spoke a little bit about squash as a metaphor for a lot of this stuff. There was something in there you talked about getting back to the T. For people who don't know squash, explain mm-hmm. that metaphor for me because I thought that was fascinating.
2: Yeah, sure. On a squash court, there is a a service line that goes across the court and then there's another line that goes um horizontal vertically the other way, creating a T and the T is the strategic center of influence of a squash court. So you, you hit a shot to move your opponent off the T and then you move to the T and there's this moment when you're in the relaxed state of readiness where you're literally in the field waiting to respond. And so that skill, I think, transfers so much to how life can be, where instead of reacting to things, we react from a place of being in the field. Right.
1: Fascinating. And like, essentially, you you put yourself in a position to be able to know that you can respond to something rather than, as you said, react to something by yeah. being in the right place, knowing that that's, that's the best possible yeah. place you can be and you just have to, to lock yeah. in. I mean, I mean, and, oh, just, it's okay. I was just going to say, go. like the Mayakamas is in
2: a crown of a volcano. It's a caldera. It's a right. It's a power spot. And I'm sure that I was attracted to it Knowing that if that land became something I could steward, that its energy, the vortex of, of that energy there, would draw people to right. the property. So, in a sense, that is the physical T of my
1: work life. Right. I actually I also think just saying I'm going to a you know retreat in a volcano is just cool anyway like <laughs> you you would win on that on that basis alone um so that's awesome just a question on that actually like I spent a little bit of time in the bay area and found I think I would call it a mode of thinking there which was quite prevalent in the bay area and California generally and and sort of even up the Pacific Northwest do you, does, do you see this working elsewhere is this a model for you know, for other countries and other you know cities, even in the US, to to try and emulate or replicate or, or have their own brand of, or, or do you even see that happening?
2: Well, absolutely. And if you look at what people who are, have wealth do when they live in a city, they often have country places. And our goal is to democratize that experience for everyone. Right. So, I mean, not necessarily everyone, but for those that are you know interested, I believe that every human being. Should have access to the healing power of nature in, right. in an affordable way, and I don't see why. You know, every city is surrounded by natural beauty, and our hope is to encourage and support other people who want to bring our model of disconnecting to reconnect um, mm-hmm. to their to their region as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating. There was a, it's a slight tangent, but there was a space in Perth where I grew up in the west coast of Australia that was on someone's farm, and it was a kind of a natural amphitheater. But they had sort of added some limestone blocks and made it into a decent sized amphitheater, and it created so much opportunity. And it wasn't just concerts; they had a whole bunch of talks there, and they had festivals there. They had a huge amount simply because someone had said, "An hour and a half out of Perth, we're going to build this space," and Nowhere else in Australia had that space. And you always questioned, well, why, why wouldn't that exist an hour and a half from Sydney or an hour and a half from Melbourne or an hour and a half from Adelaide? There's obviously a hill somewhere which you could build an amphitheater on. And I was always, always, always astounded by that. And I think if you can create a, a model and, and publish that model, there's certainly going to be at least one person in, in, in every city who says, why wouldn't we do that here as well? Which I think it's fascinating. Yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. And, you know, when you think about it, it's a little crazy that we even have to, think this way. This is how we used to live. We used to live in villages and nature, and we had to be in relationship to the watershed and to the right. food and to right. the animals and to each other. And I think that when we go into nature, it's a remembering that's deep in our in our DNA. So it's not yeah. that hard for people to drop in because it's like, oh yeah, this is a remembering.
1: Right. This is a familiarity. And th- th- I typically ask uh, around this point in the interview, like, and I think I don't know the answer, but like in a world where a lot has to be done, you know, there's a lot going on. How, I mean, other than, maybe other than nature, how do you find your center? Like what's the thing that sort of brings you back and and grounds you and and enables, gives you the energy to sort of, to keep going after, especially in the light of things like what happened in the fires in 2017?
2: Yeah. Well, I I know that when we're stressed, we can't think well. So in my mind, we don't have time not to slow down. Right. And for me, that's slowing down has been grounded in a meditation practice, mm-hmm. but it's not just sitting in meditation and emptying out. I find that actually a conversation can emerge in that deep meditative state. Mm-hmm. I find it extremely creative, renewing, and energizing and I integrate a little qigong and I keep playing tennis and squash, yep, and going on hikes and you know I have a, a pretty good variety of activities that keep me grounded. Uh, throughout the day,
1: yeah, I love it. I love it. I, I can't. I can't wait to get over. it. What, what's your timeline for uh, for the sanctuary? Do you, do you think to to have it back up and and you know, well, integrated and running?
2: We're starting to gather small groups now during the day. We have some um, structures, mm-hmm. um, air streams on the property, so we are gathering folks for meditation and early discussions on who wants to play. Yeah, I would imagine that. In 2021, we'll build an off-the-grid uh, campus on some of the key parcels. And mm-hmm. as we bring in guilds and sponsors of the guilds, we'll build out the rest of the property. But you know, given that we are in a fire ecology, we're considering building things that are either fire-adaptive or are light on the land so that the cost is not great if we were to lose them in a fire right. and Twenty or thirty years, so yeah, we're going to have to adjust accordingly to the situation.
1: Yeah, well, you have to adapt to nature because it's uh, it's going to do what it's going to do. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean,
2: in a way, and and also with all the buildings gone, yeah, it's like how how can we not screw up what already is now, which right. is an incredible place of of silence and and nature regenerating, and the ant, wildlife has never been more abundant. We're finding that now in the whole planet. That wildlife yeah. is resurrecting because of that. So I think there's a lot of a lot of lot to listen to right now mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. we go ahead and build anything significant. And there's also some incredible, you know, modular prefab structures using you know smart technology that we imagine will be part of our go forward as well. So we're not in a rush to build the permanent structures. We're more interested in how do we. You know, gather lightly on the land that, that enhances mm-hmm. the natural power that's already there.
1: Yeah, I mean, in some respects, you've been given a a, a beautiful blank blank sheet and a, and a whole bunch of opportunity for renewal. So that's that's fascinating. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dave, that was uh, that was amazing. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it there for today. I just I um I'm so enthused to hear it, and I, like we'll have some links to to the property before and, and some of the things that are coming, which I, I saw some of the renders on the site. I'm so excited for the work that you're doing, and I'm I'm really stoked to hear that it's all coming back together for you as well.
2: Well, thanks for your curiosity and giving me uh an opportunity to share what we're up to, and I look forward to keeping our connection going. Hopefully at Maya Commas when you're out here again.
1: That sounds great. Thanks again, Dave. Talk soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. -bye. Bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shape the System. As usual, if you'd like to suggest a guest, someone that you know who's helped change a system for the better, please go to www.sapethesystem.org, click on the top right-hand corner, then click Suggest Guest. Make sure that you click Subscribe so that you get the new episode. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures. Connects founders to the services they need along their journey. Whether you're looking to refine your strategy, mature your finance function, prepare for a capital raise, expand abroad, or simply comply with regulatory requirements, they provide you with the support you need to drive your business forward.